So nationwide, something like 25% of pastors are probably legitimately close to burnout. Probably 25% more are at least trending in that direction. You want to you you continue this theological discussion in a car? Or in a jailhouse for the cops? What the heck is going on with American pastors? We are in a mini-series we're calling Bait and Switch, The State of Pastors and How Ministry Just Changed. And today we're going to dig into some of the specifics. How are pastors doing? And more importantly, why should you care? Today, John Medlock talks to us about his research, about what it takes to thrive in ministry, and why many, many pastors are struggling. Welcome to Everything Just Changed, where we envision a post-culture war church and equip leaders who just can't even anymore. Join your hosts, Brad Edwards and Bryce Hales, as they help you navigate a shifting cultural context with thoughtfulness and hope. John Medlock, we are uh, really excited to talk with you today. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, guys. Likewise, excited to be here. Yeah, thanks. So, John, you've been a pastor for uh, many years, and then in the last couple of years, you've transitioned to a new role where you're working for RBI. And for those who don't know, RBI is a a denominational agency focusing on retirement and benefits for Presbyterian pastors, but you're also doing research around the health of pastors and their vocations. And so you really took, I think, that role at RBI in order to spearhead some of that research. Could you just give us a brief overview of your study? Yeah, um, Bryce, I'm happy to. So um, independently, I'm also a PhD student um, at Trinity University. And a few years ago, while I was thinking about making this career transition, I was also in a conversation with uh, my PhD advisor and friend, uh, Donald Guthrie, who has done research in the past on pastoral well-being and resilience. And he and I were talking about, basically, we we know what it takes for pastors to be healthy. Um, There's probably 20 years worth of good research now on that topic. And and it's, you're at the point where all of the parties are kind of saying the same thing. And so Mm -hmm. the way we are framing this is we know, we know what it takes for pastors to be healthy. What we don't know is how, how are our pastors doing? In other words, are they doing the things they need to do? Um, and other than anecdotally, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to figure that out. And so um, it was, it was really a, a nice coincidence that I was moving to this denominational role right at the same time that we were, we were kind of asking this question. And I realized I have the platform here as an agency of our national denomination to do something like that. And so we designed a research study that was two-pronged. The first prong was a big quantitative survey where we took data from over 900 of our pastors on the various um, influences that contribute to well-being. In other words, just to get the baseline, like how are how are pastors mm-hmm. doing in these seven areas? And then we followed up that quantitative study with a 
qualitative study where we convened focus groups. And we ended up focus grouping over 90 pastors in 16 focus groups um, from all over the world. And we did a deep dive into their lives as pastors, asking them to help us understand what's what's going well for them. Where are they struggling? Um, where do they need help? Where have they found success? Uh, things like that. And then we attempted to take the results of those two studies and synthesize them into some kind of meaningful findings. So that's that's an overview of the work we've done. Okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, just generally, how would you say pastors are doing? Uh, some of the statistics that uh, I've seen you um, cite seem pretty alarming. 70% of pastors say the demands of ministry inhibit or challenge their own spiritual maturity. 50% of pastors struggle to experience intimacy with Jesus and rarely receive care from his body. That's half of us. Uh, 51% of pastors' wives are not thriving due to the pressures of of, uh, of their, their husband's role. I mean... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> that's pretty bleak. You, wow. Yeah, <laughs> especially the first, the first two that you... Well, those are all pretty significant things. Here's what I would say, Bryce. I I am not a pessimist. Um, I would say that this is a good news, bad news situation. And here's why I would say that. Um, our research and the research of a lot of, of others shows that for the most part, the large majority of pastors actually are really satisfied in their jobs. They have a sense of calling. Um, they have a desire to serve the church and to serve God by loving people and serving people and they're passionate and engaged and committed. And at the same time, um, the, at least in our context, the, the stats that you just cited are true and a not insignificant minority of pastors are struggling. So nationwide, um, something like 25% of pastors are probably legitimately close to burnout. They're depressed. Wow. They're anxious. They're suffering um, physically. They're physically unhealthy. And mm -hmm. um, probably 25% more are at least trending in that direction. So, and the numbers I just gave you came from research that's much bigger than our denomination. That's that's kind of mm -hmm. nationwide, large-scale surveys of, of lots and lots and lots of different churches and, and Christian traditions. Inside our church, the numbers are a little bit more favorable than that. It's more like 60% are doing pretty well, and then 20 and 20 are really struggling or potentially struggling. Um, but but still, it's, it's kind of in line. So the way, the way that we're saying it is pastors, for the most part, love their work. They're passionate and engaged with their calling, but they are struggling with their overall well-being. So in, you know, there's no pastor that I know, and myself included, uh, who was like, man, this ministry thing, this is going to be an easy gig, you know? <laughs> uh, like there is an expectation that this is... Uh, as a calling, it better be a calling because it's 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 really hard in in a lot of ways. Um, but I didn't hear from 
peers or friends, anything beyond the difficult, the general difficulties of day-to-day ministry that you'd kind of at least come to expect um, in, in ministry. I didn't hear anything more than that until, you know, some, you know, kind of an uptick uh, around 2015, 2016, but really, especially in the ways that are making, you know, a, a, an entire miniseries for a podcast on cultural change uh, worth a worthwhile endeavor. Uh, so how much of what you are describing either quantitatively or qualitatively is describing something that's like new versus uh, like this is something that has kind of always been there, but is has been made worse or accelerated due to the pandemic or related cultural change. Like, how do we understand the degree to which the the kind of worsening picture here is actually a change or just an exacerbation of something that was there already? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So, and it touches on a couple of things. So, first of all. What's new here, in my view, for the most part, is the fact that we are now talking about this and studying it and naming mm. it. Um, I, That's I'm, great. I do not believe that any of this is, there's truly anything new under the sun. Um, and we can talk about the unique struggles of, of being a pastor if you want, but like that's, mm-hmm. that's a given. The What's new is that, and I mentioned probably in the last 20 years, there has been an uptick in academic research on this topic. The Lilly Endowment and their desire to fund um, initiatives that create healthy pastors has been an enormous influence behind that research. They funded a lot of the research. Um, And so what you've seen is, and this is common in lots of fields, academic research bubbling under the surface growing in its confidence that it's actually on to something and then finally beginning to break through into the areas of practitioners. And I mm-hmm. think that the time frame that you mentioned, um, the kind of 20 teens, maybe a year or two or three earlier than you said, but not too far off from, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013-ish is when that happened. It's when a, a two or three books were published that, be, that were aimed at practitioners rather than academics. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of my take on it. Now, you mentioned COVID, and the, it's very interesting. Our research, the last time I was on an airplane before COVID hit, I was in Chicago with my research team, and we were starting this project. And so we, oh, we launched this project in March of 2020. And we really debated after COVID hit and it was clear that it was a real thing. We really debated, do we want to hold off? And we decided not to because, well, this is, this is what God has for us. And one mm-hmm. of the things that we found, um, doing this this project, which took about a year. And so we were, it was a year of surveying, reading responses, and focus grouping pastors during the middle of the worst part of the pandemic. One of the things we found was, and we really believe this, the pandemic didn't cause anything. The, the pandemic um, eliminated things. I mean, shone a light on things. It it was like mm-hmm. the pressure test on the bridge that shows where the cracks yeah. already were. 
Yeah. So it yeah. exacerbated things. Can I just like ask a, a sort of a follow up on that? I, I was I was actually going to ask that before you went there, um, because one of the things that we've heard from a lot of our listeners, and I think that I mean, I, I think Brad and I have both felt this is that the experience of ministry has turned out to be very different than what we expected ministry to be like when we were in, in seminary. And um, I mean, we, we started this podcast like maybe six or eight weeks into the pandemic because we wanted to ask the question of like, to what extent did the pandemic change versus reveal what was already there? Um, but I wonder if you have any, any thoughts or, or just able to expand on that reality. I, th- I think that, so many pastors, um, and I hesitate to put like a an age range here, but like I think especially maybe under the age of fifty, um, feel like ministry has turned out to be so different than what what we had uh, been been expecting before. And so I'm I'm curious about that, like 2011 to 13 ish age range, when some of this research comes out, it's is starting to trickle out. Yeah, um, like is is it the thing that changed? Is it an awareness, you know, <laughs> or, or or is there something that really was different about maybe being a pastor in like the eighties and nineties than than the challenges pastors are facing now? So I'll t- I'll I'll give you my view, and this is you know hold this lightly. I think I think what's I think a couple of things that have changed is are. Number one, the cohort of pastors that you're describing, the the slightly younger generation, which I'm on the upper end of, but I think I experienced that that wave of pastors coming up, coincides mm-hmm. with a broader cultural awareness of the need for things like self care, um, you know, the need for work life balance. Um, et cetera, et cetera. And so those, you're already, you're bringing guys into seminary and men and women in different traditions into seminaries and into pastorates who are already primed with that. They're not the workaholic, sell your soul to the company store generation that their parents were. Mm. Coupled with the research that was coming to light that was that was beginning to name very specifically not only the problem but to name potential solutions to the problem. Yeah, I, I guess I'm just sort of thinking like, um, you know, there are challenges inherent to different uh, vocations, and it's it's been you know pretty ob- uh, for a long time. People know that like um, people in the military have unique challenges, right? Because of deployment and because of moving. Um, People who work in law enforcement have unique challenges that put stresses not just on on the individual but their whole family, and um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just curious about we're we're starting to talk more about the way, and and not just pastors talking about that, but there's becoming maybe a, a broader cultural awareness amongst at least other Christians that there are stresses on pastors. And are we talking more about that just because the research is coming out and we're now more aware of it? Or, or are there also cultural changes that have made it more difficult? I think, I, I think here's what I think. I think that the pastoral role, I get asked this a decent amount, and I've been, I've been thinking about it a lot. Is pastoring uniquely 
difficult or challenging? And the way I answer that question is right. Yeah. No, pastoring is not more difficult. Like, um, I mean, the vocations you just mentioned are, are really stressful and challenging ones. And it feels, it feels arrogant to say, Oh, well, my vocation is clearly the hardest. It is not, but I can support the, and do believe that pastors face unique pressures and stresses that other people in other vocations don't, don't face. Hmm. Um, so for instance, um, there's uh, so this guy named Richard Deshaun, who is um, a professor at Michigan State, who's an expert in job analysis. Job analysis is a, a, a method for measuring the tasks and skills necessary to do jobs. Um, studied the life of local church pastors and found that the local church pastor demands 64 unique competencies. Um, And he says it is inconceivable to imagine that a single person could be uniformly good at all 64. (laughs) And yet that's really good news. And yet pastors feel the stress to be great at them. And their churches often put the pressure on pastors to be great at them. And so the literature calls this the requirement of being an expert generalist, that you have to be highly competent at a wide range of skills and tasks. Man, that shoe fits. And, and, <laughs> and but what, what Deshaun says is that most people aren't expert generalists. Most people are expert specialists. We're good at a few things and not good at, at a lot of things. That's just normal. Yeah, And so here's what he says. The breadth of tasks performed by local church pastors, coupled with the rapid switching between tasks and roles that appears prevalent in this position, is unique. I have never encountered such a fast-paced job with such varied and impactful responsibilities. Wow. So that's a, huh. that's a non-Christian researcher looking huh. at pastors and, say, and just using the tools of analysis – Hmm. Na- again, naming something that I think all of us as pastors kind of intuitively feel. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So is is that is that things like um, so you know pastors have to lead, they have to be able to stand up and speak, and they have to um, you know, be in uh, moderately competent as counselors. Let's say, and if you're in the if you're a police officer. Um, it's very difficult, but you're saying, you know, the, the, the range of skills are more. Yeah. Similar. Yeah. Yeah. And that, so the pastor and especially, and and again, most churches are small churches. Most churches have one pastor, um, and frequently only one employee and it's the pastor. So the pastor has to preach, they have to teach, they have to counsel, they also have to make sure that the liability insurance is taken care of. And they also have to make sure that the sound system works on Sunday morning. And they also have to make sure that the chairs are set up and taken down. And they also have to raise the money. And they also, like, it's, they, have to, they have to have administrative skills. They have to make sure the bulletin's printed. I'm feeling the need for a nap just hearing you list those things. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the management consultant, Peter Drucker, uh, once said that he viewed church leadership as the most difficult and taxing role that he was aware of. 
That's so validating. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so what you have with pastors is that you have this, u- this uniquely demanding job that requires this wide variety of skills that none of us are going to be good at all of them with the, pre- the attendant pressures. You have a cognitive load associated with constant task switching. And you have the demand of always being on. And that's our research really latched onto this. Our guys, when we talked to them, could not stop talking about the, the pressure that pastors feel that nobody else feels. When the accountant goes out to a ball game with his friends, he's just their buddy. But the pastor is always the pastor. Mm-hmm. And then, so that's the nature of the job. And then the other thing that is unique to pastors is the financial stresses that pastors are under. Um, pastors are underpaid compared to their similarly educated peers. I just today ran across a statistic that said pastors across the nation make on average $10,000 a year less than similarly situated social workers and public school teachers, not notoriously well-paid people. Yeah. Um, so pastors yeah. are underpaid compared to their peers with master's degrees. Pastors are public people. And so the, 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 the congregation usually knows your salary and you pastor the people who are paying your salary. And so that puts you in a weird, almost built in conflict of interest constantly. Um, pastors labor under the perception that they can't do certain things like take a nice vacation or buy a nice car. And that feels unfair because nobody else has to deal with that. Um, it, it, there's more. But those are the kinds of things that make me say with confidence, no, being a pastor is not harder than a lot of other jobs. But I do believe that being a pastor brings a unique constellation of pressures and stresses that most other vocations don't have in the full. I mean, some some vocations deal with some of them, but not all of them. No, that's that's good. And it it hits me how many of those things Mm. have like are are especially systemically rooted right like as opposed to you know the the stress that the pandemic has caused and there are kind of unique acute crises or specific situations that a lot of pastors are having to deal with but like there's there's something uh inherent about the way pastoral ministry and the vocation ha- has been set up that maybe the systems have not adapted to or are behind the curve. And, and I'm thinking specifically and especially about, um, and I had a conversation last fall with uh, Al Bart, who's the um, European director for city to city for church planting and is now at Spanish river for uh, the director and pastor of church planting there. And he, he made this comment that has hit me between the eyes. And he said, we realize we have been planting on borrowed spiritual capital. In other words, like, the discipleship in the American evangelical church has not been keeping up with planting and evangelism. And in a lot of ways, we're kind of uh, uh, out punting our coverage and, and church planters are increasingly experiencing the difficulty of, you know, we don't have the luxury anymore of, um, uh, you know, mature disciples coming with us to help start a church. You're having to like form and shape leaders from the, from the very, very beginning. Um, and, and that's a whole different dynamic and the things haven't like systems haven't changed to, to compensate with that. So like, what are some of the other kind of background systemic issues such as, right, 
salaries not keeping up with the increasing cost of seminary training or you know the increasing expectations due to the availability of sermons now being available through new media like podcasts like who can keep up with or compete with Tim Keller uh, you know the comparison game so like what are some of those other things that maybe pastors are not we like we just have kind of forgotten or have faded into the background that would be like encouraging to hear as like, here are some more unique things that like, yeah, you may not have really given this much weight or done business with this, but like, this is part of the contribution too. One of the things that we discovered and that I'm really interested in exploring more fully is what I'm calling the empathy gap between pastors and congregations. Pastors have this unique role with these unique challenges but over and over and over again, you realize that, that congregations really don't understand the difference. It, you know, it's a joke, and most people don't mean it when they say, oh, the pastor only works two hours a week. <laughs> but there's a not the kernel mm-hmm. of truth in the joke, at least f- from the perspective of the person who says it is, I don't know what you do. I don't know what your job's about. I don't know what it takes. I see you preach. Maybe I've experienced yeah. you counseling or teaching. Maybe I've volunteered on a project and seen you working, but I don't understand. And so that lack of empathy causes or contributes to congregations placing these expectations on, on their pastors. Like they, I was talking to a guy earlier today who said, um, I realized at one point I realized my elders assumed that my job was essentially exactly the same as their jobs. And he said, when I realized that they were making that assumption, I I felt like I was in a trap because, so here's a systemic issue that relates to a lot of things. And that is that pastors find themselves in the position of pastoring and leading, but also having to advocate for themselves for things Hmm. like adequate salary and benefits Um, For things like a job description that places limits on that endlessly receding horizon of potential things that you might have to do, especially as Uh a small church pastor. (laughs) The the nervous laughter of feeling seen. (laughs) (laughs) And you're advocating for those things to people who don't understand. They're not it's not malice and it's not ill will and it's not that they don't care. It's that they don't get it. We'll get right back to the interview in just a moment. But first I just want to say it's hard not to feel alone right now. Churches are moving towards extreme positions and holding the center faithfully puts you in the crossfire. I really hope that everything just changed makes you feel a little bit less alone a little more sane. A few of us are still here alongside you. So if you want to make sure that you're staying up with our latest episodes, you should click the link in the show notes and sign up for our podcast newsletter. You'll get an email every time an episode comes out and hopefully a small reminder that you're not in it alone.
yeah, like I can't, I can't, I can't help but think about those times when, like, you know, someone that you love deeply and have poured into leaves your church, and and when it's hard or difficult for you as a pastor, you know, they, I've heard more than one occasion, you know, well, we can still be friends, and it's like, no, we can't, and it's not because like I'm vengeful, but because like this job actually doesn't allow for a whole lot of like the kinds of closeness of relationship and friendship with Christians in the area who are not in your church. Like that's just not actually systemically uh, you can't, that doesn't, you can't have many of those without it taking away from your job in a way. And so that, that difficulty is like, it's a weird thing because that would not happen with anybody else's job. Yeah. It's um, and you just named something or, or kind of got close to something else that's, that's really important. And that is the difficulty of pastors finding real genuine and intimate relationships in their own Mm -hmm. system. And Mm -hmm. it's that you're always, there's always an asymmetrical power relationship. If you want to think of it that way, you're always the pastor. Mm. And so a lot of our findings kind of circled around this area of pastors need relationships. Everybody needs relationships, right? But pastors mm-hmm. need relationships, but the unique, the uniqueness of the role makes it really difficult, if not impossible, for pastors to find intimate, fulfilling relationships in their own system. Well, and it, it's it seems like even um, most people have work colleagues, friends at work, right, or, or just colleagues even. Right. And I mean, you've already referenced this, that most churches have one pastor, which means that most of my work friends, colleague friends are people who live in other parts of the country. Yeah. One, one of our guys described it as being a pastor is like, is like sitting on a one legged stool. He said, most people have three big, most people have a three legged stool in their life. They have three big domains of life. They have work colleagues. They have a network of family and friends and they have a church family. And yeah, those overlap to some degree, but if you're having, if you're struggling with your marriage, you can go to your church and find a place to process it and, and get help. And, you know, if you're having trouble at work, you can come home and process it with your family or go to church, vice versa. You can, but for mm-hmm. pastors and their families, a lot of, uh, let me just say this because I don't want to forget it. Nearly everything that I'm saying applies to pastoral spouses as well. Hmm. So let's just acknowledge yeah. that. Um, but anyway, back on track for pastors and their families work and their friend group and their church are the same thing. And so if the pastor is having trouble at work, he can't go to his friends and talk about it because they're his work. And if he's having trouble with his marriage, it's difficult for him to go to church and talk about it because he feels like that undermines his credibility as a pastor. And if he's having trouble with his church, he can't go home and talk about it because his life is so bound up with this. And so he's sitting on one legged stool. Mm-hmm. 
John, I feel like we've kind of been talking about this, but in your research, you talk about three tensions that are inherent in the life of a pastor and unique to that vocation. So could you just kind of maybe unpack what, what are those tensions? What, what do those look like? Yeah. When we did our research, we what we were doing was researching how pastors are doing in um, seven key areas that relate to well-being. Um, but when we begin to analyze the findings and, and hear what our guys were saying, it became pretty clear that they were articulating what we began with. We then called tensions, like tensions in ministry, being kind of the push and pull of knowing that there are healthy, life-giving ways of inhabiting your role and that there are unhealthy ways of being as a pastor. And there's a pull between them. So the first one is the tension of relationships. And I've, we've kind of hinted around at this already. Um, the idea that we need relationships, we were made for relationships. Everybody knows we need relationships. And yet we, we struggle. Um, we, the, I'm reminded of, there's a, there's an old word picture that is called the hedgehog's dilemma or the porcupine's dilemma that imagine a group of porcupines in a, on a winter's night and they need to huddle together to stay warm. And so they come together, but then all they do is prick each other with their prickly pins. And so they move away, but then they're cold and so they come back together and then they hurt each other and they move away. That's what relationships feel like to pastors. Um, pastors need intimate relationship, but it's for the reasons that we've said before hard. And some would say almost impossible to find them in the church you pastor, um, because you can never get too close. Um, and so anyway, that's, that's the tension, the tension between isolation and intimate life-giving relationships. So that's one. The next one is what we call the tension of identity. And so by that, I mean, like, what, what makes you uniquely you, you know, who makes you who you are? What makes you a person of worth and value? Where do you find your, your security and meaning? Um, and the, and the tension here is, do you ground your identity in your role as a pastor? Or do you ground your identity in what Jesus has done for you? Right? Is it your work or is it Jesus' work that really secures you, that really makes you worthwhile as a person? And like one of the things, one of the things we found is that because of a lot of the systemic pressures that exist in churches, Brad, that you were talking about, mm-hmm. pastors are pulled toward finding their identity in their work. Um, and it's everything from unreasonable expectations and, and the lack of understanding. Um, it's things like um, the, the never, never being able to take the pastoral hat off, the always being a pastor. You know, you're a pastor three, you know, 24-7, 365. And your vocation is bound up with your deepest faith convictions, you know, nobody else has that. Or if they, or if they do, it's recognized as unhealthy. Um, but pastors' vocations are bound up with their, just their core faith convictions. 
Um, mm-hmm. Talk about things like metrics. You, you know, a lot of our guys said that there's there's three ends: nickels, noses, and new conversions. That that if that's going well, then you're going great. Um, but if the budget suffers, if the attendance suffers, things like that, then all of a sudden it's like, it's not just, Hey, let's figure out what's going on so we can improve. It's like, who am I as a person? So there's that, that tension of identity. Um, and, and to be fair, it's not, it's a two way street. It can be self-inflicted. Um, it can be, it can be pride. Um, it can be fear. It can be, you know, the idolatry of performance and success and busyness and things like that. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, that's the, the tension of, of, um, of identity that pastors find themselves in. And then the third one is what we're calling the tension of systems. This is a, a little bit abstract, but what we mean by that is the, just the reality that, that groups of people in long-term close relationships will inevitably become emotionally connected. That's just how God made us. It's how we're wired up. And what that means is that over time, everybody in the system affects everybody else with the actions they take, the words that they say, the decisions they make, the ways that they do things like manage conflict, make plans for the future. Um, In my office, I have a baby mobile hanging from the ceiling. And people, everybody in here now knows why I have it. But early on, people would come in and go, why do you have a baby mobile hanging from your ceiling? And I would say, because that's, that's what we are. We're a system. You can't pull on the giraffe without mm-hmm. the hippo and the bear and the cat fluttering. Mm-hmm. And systems says, how do you account for the flutter in your, in your, in your system? Are you self-aware about the fact that the things you do will inevitably ripple out? And are you accounting for that? Um, To the extent that you learn to do that, Mm. that's a mark of emotional maturity that will help you become a a much calmer and, and better leader. Man, that that is something I I feel like you don't hear a whole lot in some of these conversations Mm. because I think we're used to, you know, our news feeds are flooded with celebrity pastors and leaders, and we're, we use the language of platform more than institution. But those systems, what you're describing is that that is the institutional part of the church in 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 ways that are more than just the kind of organic community part of that. And I, I want to ask specifically about that because we have, you know, we have a lot of listeners who um, have seen the impact of how being not self-aware of how your influence ripples throughout those systems and how, you know, pastors or leaders have, um, you know, led in such a way that resulted with abuse or out- outright intentionally abused their power and their leadership. And so how, um, I guess, how would implementing, you know, the, the, the recommendations and like, what does it look like to grow in that? And, and why should, um, those who are maybe even fearful of the church or pastors because of the abuse that is so 
so increasingly being visible now, like how, how would you, what would you say to them who are fearful of that? Like why support and, uh, uh, an investment in pastoral health would, is actually a good thing as opposed to like rewarding bad behavior? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And boy, that issue really is front and center, isn't it? Um, oh, yeah. and, and, and it's good. I mean, it's bad that those things have happened, but it's good that light is finally being shown on those things. Here's what I would say. And I'm going to get at this sideways. So bear with me. I think, I think it'll make sense. Sure. If not, you can tell me. No, totally. <laughs> the first thing is this. Why, if, even if, if you're not a Christian or if you're suspicious of the church or maybe you've been hurt by the church, why should you be concerned about an investment in pastoral well-being? Um, first, I would say this, that healthy churches provide an immense positive impact on communities in general. Um, the mm. University of Pennsylvania did a huge research project trying to ascertain the public value that congregations add to communities. And they considered all kinds of factors um, and discovered that on average, a healthy congregation contributes about $1.7 million per year of value to a community. They call, wow. they call this the economic halo effect. Um, and this is value that is almost all of that is beyond the Sunday morning local church worship service time. Um, you know, how much, how much is it worth? How much is a saved marriage worth? Hmm. How much is um, a semi-private space where the local AA chapter can meet worth? How much is a prevented suicide worth? Things like that. So number one, healthy churches impact the community. Number two, healthy churches positively impact public health. Mm. Um, the Harvard School of Public Health has a long running research project um, investigating this. And basically what they will tell you is that people who attend religious services regularly are significantly less likely to suffer problems like alcoholism, substance abuse, severe anxiety and depression. And they are far less likely than the average population to die from what they call deaths of despair, right? So suicides, alcohol poisoning, yeah. drug overdoses. Yeah. Um, so why say those things? Whether you're a Christian or not, you should want healthy churches in your community. And healthy churches need healthy. Pa in order to be healthy, a church needs a healthy pastor. A church will not be any healthier than its pastor. Um, and then I, the, the, the last thing I would say is this, that you don't have to be a Christian to want people to thrive. Like I think the humanist in all of us wants people to thrive. And healthy pastors are far less likely to hurt people. Emotionally intelligent, self-aware pastors who have learned how to handle conflict and who've learned humility are far less likely to be, to misuse their power and abuse their power and hurt people. Hmm. So I, I think all of those are compelling That's, reasons that, that this is a yeah. worthwhile endeavor. Yeah. Wow. 
I, I mean, honestly, um, <laughs> being able to quantify $1.7 million per congregation. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. So gosh. So we, in some ways I feel like we're coming at this from like a negative, <laughs> so much of this conversation has been from the negative side, but could we maybe switch to the positive? Can you actually tell us how do you define pastoral well-being? What does that look like? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because when you guys first reached out to me, about the possibility of being on the, the phrase pastoral burnout was used. And I had to mm. say, well, that's actually not what we're researching. Mm. Um, we're researching well-being. And the reason we did it is because of what you just said, Bryce, is that we actually want to approach this from an appreciative standpoint. Mm. Um, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that the burnout stuff is being done. That's great. But our angle is we want to approach this from a positive standpoint. So here's, um, here is our definition of pastoral well-being. Um, we define pastoral well-being as holistic health that leads to flourishing over time on the hard road of pastoral ministry. Um, that's the one sentence elevator pitch. And then if you ask me the next question, that is, okay, well, then what does a pastor need to do to move toward that kind of holistic health? Um, we both our research and also kind of springboarding off of other research in the past have identified seven, um, what I call well-being influences. And this is the kind of thing that we, we can say with confidence, we can look at a pastor in the eye and say with confidence to the extent that you attend to these things, it will go well with you. Um, and so those things are spiritual formation. Um, you mentioned the discipleship gap earlier, Brad, and mm-hmm. there's something there about that. So is a pastor, the pastor's own walk with Jesus. This is that 70% statistic that you quoted earlier, Bryce, gets at this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But So are you attending to your own faith formation? Um, the second one is self-stewardship. We used to call this self-care and we were running into a little bit of people mistaking what we meant, that people hear self-care and sometimes they think, oh, just taking a spa day or something, (laughs) which that's great. If you want to take a spa day, like God bless your soul, but that's not really what we mean. (laughs) Um, We mean, what we mean is, and the reason we landed on self-stewardship is stewarding the resource of yourself that God has given you a body and a mind and an emotional life and a spiritual life and a vocational um, life. And if you steward yourself as a resource, then you can still have the capacity to pour into others. But if you just spend yourself constantly, you spend up the resource of you and then you can't carry out your calling. So self-stewardship next is emotional intelligence. Um, the ability to, to be self-aware enough to manage your own emotions and not be managed by them, and then to respond appropriately to the emotions of others, to be connected with them, but not let them hijack you. Um, next is cultural intelligence. And boy, the need for that has, in the past five or six years, all of a sudden been thrust into the limelight. 
Yeah. Um, you know, the, the ability to reach across the chasm of cultural differences with humility and an attitude of love and respect. Uh, the next one is marriage and family. Just how's your relationship with your wife if you're, if, or your spouse if you're married? How's your relationship with your kids if you have them? Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, in, now this is true for our pastors. I, I can't say this across the board, but for our pastors, the single biggest predictor of overall well-being was a healthy marriage. Hmm. Um, so that's a huge one. The next one is vocational in nature and it's leadership and management. Like, do you know how to cast a vision and um, guide adaptive change toward it? And then do you know how to do the day-to-day um, just tactical stuff required to, to run the ship? One of the things that we found is that pastors are not good at that, that they will pretty routinely say things like, when I was in seminary, I, I just wanted to learn to preach and teach. And, you know, may, maybe I have a passion for evangelism or like, that's what I want to do. But I've, I just I'm in all these meetings. I have to make all these decisions. And we, we're like, yep you are in meetings. You certainly are. (laughs) And so it would do well for you to learn how to inhabit that role. So anyway, that's leadership and management. And then the last one is financial sufficiency. Um, Do you have enough resources to live comfortably in the area where you are called to live? And do you have the capacity to to use and steward them wisely? Hmm. Now that's a mouthful. But that's me expanding on the things that will lead to flourishing over the long road of pastoral ministry. Man, I, I feel like there are are multiple, like that's so helpful because I feel like those are all really good categorical anchors that any pastor could could just use as an evaluative lens and ask that question. And and that helps narrow down this this uh, kind of concept of, of pastoral well-being into something that's kind of actionable. Um what would you say to churches, like to congregants, whether that's, you know, an elder who, you know, is part of a, an elder board that oversees a pastor or just the, the average attendee on Sunday morning, anywhere and everywhere in between there? Like, what would you say uh, to, in light of the research that you've done, um, what would you say that they could do or where'd you, what would you encourage them to do? or, or maybe not do <laughs> in order to help, uh, and support their pastor and help them move toward well-being, not just like as a, like help and support in a generic sense, but especially in light of these seven, um, kind of categories. Yeah. A lot of times when I speak places or, or consult with groups, I'll start by asking a series of questions. Um, and I'll, I'll say things like, do you know, How's your pastor's marriage? Um, it, how is he able to sustain his monthly budget? How's his walk with Jesus? Like, what's what's his favorite thing about his job, and what's the thing about his job that really he just wishes he didn't have to do? And 
I don't expect an answer to those questions. They're rhetorical, but I ask them to reflect on those. And then the next question is, does anybody know? Hmm. And who's attending to these things? So for the average congregant, I would say figure out a way to learn more about the about the joys and struggles of actually doing the work of being a pastor. Um, one of the things that I love to do is put our little booklet that we wrote of our findings into the hands of people who are not pastors. You, you give that to pastors and they look at it and they go, yep, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Bryce even said, you said earlier, I feel seen. Yeah. <laughs> the number of times I've heard that from pastors in the past year or so is beyond counting. <laughs> and I'm glad for that. I want pastors to be mm-hmm. seen. I want them. I mean, again, I'm a, I'm a denominational agency, so I'm, I care about all pastors, but especially our denomination, the ones I have some influence over, I want them to know their church cares about them. Mm-hmm. But what I really want is to get, is to close the empathy gap between congregations and leadership teams and their pastors so that those teams do grow into a little bit more awareness of like, oh, I get, I do see that you have these struggles. It never dawned on me that you're never off. It never dawned on me that you have all these different crazy things you have to do. So I would say learn Mm -hmm about the real life of your pastor. Give them a safe space to be honest. And the, and the same thing goes for the spouse. Yeah, that's that's good. John, thanks um, so much. I, I feel like so much of this discussion has both um, kind of helped um, just clarify for, for those of our listeners who are pastors, you know, this is why you're facing some of these challenges. But I, I hope also for those of our listeners who aren't pastors, who maybe are even going, you know, why would I want to listen to a conversation about what it's like to be a pastor that, that it, this is helping close the empathy gap. Let me, let me finish with one question here. You said at the beginning that you are optimistic about, uh, about pastors and about what's going on in pastoral ministry. Could you just, uh, as we finish, like help us understand wh- what, what is giving you hope as you think about the well-being of pastors? Yeah, a couple of things, Bryce. And the first, the first thing that I've already said, but I will reiterate because I really believe it's true, is that I, I do not find, and I've talked to a lot of pastors in the past year to year and a half, I don't find a sense of despair. I don't hear guys in mass wanting to quit and go sell insurance. Um, I hear a group of people who are genuinely committed and called to a unique and joyful and challenging vocation who are Mm -hmm. fairly eyes open about it and want to figure out how to make it work. Like not many pastors want, truly want to fail. And I, 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 
that's not really the right way to say it because nobody wants to fail. <laughs> but I mean, they don't really deep down mm-hmm. their heart. They want, they did it because they love the church and they still love the church. They did it because they love Jesus and they still love Jesus. I hear that over and over again. So that gives me hope. Mm-hmm. It gives me hope that we are now having this conversation. Mm. Um, it gives me hope that, you know, just, just me, just little old me, doing the things that I do here in our denomination have had many opportunities to have conversations with leadership teams and congregations. And I've seen them realize how they can care for their pastor better. Mm. And so I, cause I, in the same mindset that I believe in general pastors are passionate, committed, and love their callings. I also believe that churches really do love their pastors and want to care for them. And I believe the empathy gap is not intentional or malicious. Hmm. It's just a lack of it's the uniqueness of the role is such that it's hard to apprehend. But when given the opportunity, I've seen congregations do it. Hmm. So um, that's awesome. You know, those are those are things that give me hope. Yeah, man, that's great. John, thanks so much for uh, sharing with us today. But even more than that, thanks so much for the the research and work you're doing to just help clarify and um, some of the issues around pastoral well-being so that we can hopefully move in that direction. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Enjoyed it a lot. Man, that was good. So, Bryce, what... Uh, what just changed for you as a result of this conversation with John? So I have a feeling we're both going to um, be putting our finger on the same thing here, but um, the University of Pennsylvania study about um, the average congregation adding $1.7 million of value to their community is so fascinating because I, I was thinking, and we mentioned this, um, I mentioned this to John, but when I was a college pastor doing ministry on a university campus, I often thought about, you know, we're providing, we're adding value to the college experience mm-hmm. that the university is not paying for. And, and, but I, I, I didn't have a way to quantify that other than just, I knew what our annual budget was, but what, I, I, what I appreciated what John was pointing out that this study is, is revealing that, you know, the mental health benefits that come from a person's involvement in a, in a healthy church or the stability of marriages um, that, you know, don't end in divorce because people are involved in a church or, um, you know, just all of those the, uh, I think every pastor hopes that they're doing, you know, providing a positive social benefit. And that's not necessarily maybe the reason why we do go into ministry, but gosh, it's a great fringe benefit. And to see that quantified $1.7 million for the average congregation is that's, I mean, far exceeds the annual budget of most churches. That's like, that's gotta be three or four times the annual budget of the average church. I mean, so that's, that's really cool. It's really interesting to see that. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I think, you know, my, my, my takeaway too was just the, in the way that that, what you just described actually exposed and realized how kind of materialist, uh, even as a pastor, I can see the world 
through. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is like when you think about the benefits of a church in a community, well, yeah, of course it benefits the people who are members of a church or who are part of that church in some way. But part of what he was uh, describing in terms of the the uh, economic halo effect of a church's presence in a community goes way beyond that. And we've we've been we've been talking about that this whole time we've been doing this podcast about the importance of institutions mm-hmm. in a community and and how that affects uh, intangibles, but also has a ripple effect in the way that you know someone's generosity being cultivated within a church is is going to have this heart transformative uh, impact on their posture toward opportunities to be generous outside of the church and in the local community. Yeah. And and I think so much of uh, the conversation around, you know, pastoral well-being being in health is, you know, for pastors, like we understand the importance and need of uh, for like this for the sake of survival and longevity and ministry. But I think there's something about, hey, this isn't just about you getting health, healthy in a way that you may worry sounds or feels or is selfish. It's actually also for the sake of your church being healthy and for those ongoing ripple effects outward into the community. Like this isn't, it's not a selfish thing to prioritize a pastor's well-being. Yeah. It has this this crazy effect yeah. that 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 goes way beyond yeah. that individual Well, or even family. the other way to say that is that like there will be a ripple effect one way or the other and whether yeah, it's yeah. positive or negative will be largely correlated to the health of the pastors of those churches. Oh yeah, and we're used to seeing, right? Like the whole the, that what prompted that part of our discussion was the question around the negative ripple effects of, uh, you know, pastors or institutional leaders who have turned abusive and their, their church, their institution is toxic as a result of their unhealthy leadership and how people are deconstructing now. And people are hesitant to walk into healthy churches because, uh, there's, you know, one, a, a mm. top rated and listened to podcast details, the rise and fall of a mega church. Right. Mm. So we we're used to those ripple effects being really negative, but to your point, yeah, like if there are negative ripple effects, then that means there can be positive ripple effects too. And that mm-hmm. I think, like, I if any pastors are listening to this one in particular, like, I really hope one of the big takeaways is don't feel selfish uh, about like allowing yourself to be cared for and invested in by your church or to to prioritize your health and your care in the midst of all the other needs that are clamoring for your attention as well. It's not unrelated to the ministry you're trying to do, or it's not going to take away. It's actually going to multiply your your ministry leadership. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. If you found Everything Just Changed compelling, please rate and review the show so that more people can find it. The podcast is hosted by Bryce Hills and Brad Edwards. It's edited by Nathan Michelle. Theme music is by Denny Rankin and David Rigel designed our logo. We look forward to talking to you next time on Everything Just Changed.